Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. It's time for you. A podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Fiona MacArthur, a network coordinator for Sheep Connect New South Wales. The Sheep Extension Network in New South Wales, which is funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 2,200 and our main aim is to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on information about all things sheep. After interviewing Reza Masumi last week from Iran, I decided to continue with the theme and see who else from across the globe listens to Sheep Connect New South Wales webinars and podcasts. My search led me to Leslie Pryor. Leslie is a Merino farmer from the UK and actively involved with the wool industry. With close ties to Australia, Leslie is a member of the Australian Superfine Wool Growers Association, and also the first overseas associate member of the Australian Stud Merino Breeders Association. Leslie is grateful to receive tremendous support and help from all her friends and colleagues in Australia. And in return, Leslie aims to be a valuable campaigner for the wool industry, working as a council member of the Campaign for Wool and an individual member of the International Wool Textile Organisation. It is my pleasure to warmly welcome Leslie to the podcast today to share with us a little about her life as a sheep farmer and wool advocate. Welcome, Leslie, and thank you for joining me on It's Time For You. Well, thank you very much, Fiona, and uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Oh, I'm looking forward to talking to you too, Leslie. Let's start us off because I'd love to paint a picture of where you're from for all our listeners. So what part of the UK do you come from? Well, we're down in Devon, which is in the southwest of England, right down in that little bit that juts out into the Atlantic. So next to Cornwall and uh, about as far west of London as of London as you can possibly get before you drop in the sea. And what's the environment like down there? It's uh, it's a maritime climate. So we're surrounded by sea on two sides, uh, coast to coast county. So we've got a large block of land in the middle of uh, two coastal areas. And it's got a huge range of landscapes, really. There's moorland, um, lots of deep ravines with oak woodlands, good grass pasture land, and it's quite good cropping country in some places, but not exactly where we are. Ours is very much a grassland farm. Um, as far as the climate's concerned, as I say, it's maritime, uh, so we're moderate. Um, in the summer, we're about 20 to 25 degrees. We flake out if we get to 30. You know, everybody passes out and moans and groans. <laughs> <laughs> And in in the winter, we're about five to 10 degrees. We don't get much in the way of snow, um, a few frosts, but nothing dramatic. Rainfall is probably the most significant thing. Um, It's about 800 to 1,000 mil here, but 40% of that falls in the summer. So it's it's reasonably evenly spread. So our grass grows pretty much year round and doesn't stop for very long. 
which means there's usually pretty good grub in front of the sheep if they're outside. But we do have to bring them in during the periods of heaviest rainfall in the winter because they just trash the ground and turn it into a mud bath. So that's probably the, the, the main difference, really, the amount of rainfall and the distribution of the rainfall that we get here. It, it sounds very idyllic. One of my nerdy pastimes, actually, when I get the chance is to watch Escape to the Country UK, and <laughs> it's absolutely stunning. Yeah. <laughs> Something yeah, everyone didn't know about me. It yeah, it, it's very beautiful here, I must say. You know, we get a bit, a bit immune to it, particularly when you're spending your time in the lambing shed, as I am at the moment, you know, and really the last thing you want to look at is a, is a wood full of bluebells. But you, you go out and you force yourself to, and you just remember that, God, you know, we really are lucky to live here. It's a real privilege, particularly when you think that this farm is over a thousand years old and has been here wow. since before the time of the Norman conquest of the UK. And we know that because we have documents to tell us that that's the case. So people have farmed this landscape for a very, very, very long time. And we're just the latest generation. This farm has a, a personality and a presence which is independent of us. And every now and again, it brings you up short and you just think, wow, aren't we lucky? Yeah, it truly is extraordinary. And it's it's something I've always craved a little bit for living in such a baby country that I do in Australia, that, yeah, the UK is just so full of history. And it's absolutely wonderful that you can live on a property for uh, that you've known that's been there for so long with all the history with it. Yeah. 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 It has baggage, though, mind you, because everybody in the neighbourhood who's known the farm for generations always is very happy to come and tell you what you're doing wrong, because that's not how grandfather so-and-so did it or great uncle so-and-so would have done it. You know, so there's, there's always baggage, but basically it's a definite plus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's lovely. Um, over in the UK, farms are obviously on a much smaller scale than here in Australia. So to help paint us a bit of a picture in the region of Devon where you're from, what's the average size of a farm in your area? Right, well, I had to check that up yesterday on the, the DEFRA database and the average farm size in Devon is 68 hectares. We have just a bit less than that, but not much. And... 68 hectares sounds like basically just one paddock for, for some of you guys, but you have to remember that it's incredibly fertile ground and we can pack an awful lot of animals onto 68 hectares. Um, stocking rates are much, much higher because we just have permanent good grass on offer. Um, this particular bit of the UK is the highest um, cattle head country uh, county in the whole of England. More cattle are here than anywhere else. And it's the dairy capital of England. So I think that shows you how much good grass grows here. So it's it's small farm size, but you can pack a hell of a lot of animals onto them. And Leslie, what would your stocking rate be, just to give us a bit of a comparison? Well, we can, we can actually run if we wanted to, and we don't, but we could run at 10 sheep and their followers per acre. So what would that be? 2.28 acres per hectare. That would be about 25 sheep per hectare. And yeah, followers. It's definitely very high. Yes. And that's that's pretty, pretty standard around here. We can do that. Yeah. 
that's definitely an incredibly high stocking rate compared to Australia. And no doubt our, our land values are increasing, but no doubt yours are through the roof. Is that the case? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a real problem over here. Most farmers have to rent ground. Uh, we own, we're very fortunate, but if we wanted to buy extra ground, even if we could find it for sale, we would have to spend 60,000 Australian dollars per hectare to buy ground that's equivalent to what we've got here. So that gives you some idea. I mean, there's tremendous pressure on land in the UK. We're a tiny country and particularly following this COVID epidemic, we're getting a massive influx into so-called pretty areas like ours of escapee city lifestylers who will come down and buy up small farms. I mean, all farms are small, but I would buy up a farm um, and basically take it out of production and take it out of reach of people who really want to farm. So it, it is a, a bit of a nightmare and we are hamstrung. We can't really expand even if we want to because we just can't afford it and we can't buy it because it's not for sale. So difficult and I don't know how kids start in this country. I haven't got a clue how anybody would start to get on the ladder whereas it seems that in Australia you guys are lucky because young people who want to farm generally seem to be able to get their hands on land. Am I right or is that not the case? Um, look, I'm, I'd only comment on my area that's closer to me, but I still think it is very hard for younger people to start out, but probably mm -hmm. not as impossible as it is in the UK, that's for sure. Um, if you don't yeah. have the backing behind you, it's certainly, it's very hard to expand and get enough land to make mm. an income. Yeah. yeah, but we we are though, that's interesting, the comment you made about COVID, we are having the same problems in mm. um, that people are moving away from the city and actually looking for a life out in re the regional areas to mm. es escape the city life, which, you know, that's good for regional areas though, because that brings with it a skilled labour force. So that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it brings new ideas, it brings new income, etc. The problem is it doesn't always do much for the land that they buy around here. You know, there's a lot of land that's beginning to go back. It's a bit derelict. Um, I mean, even if you wanted to go down this sort of rewilding route, which is very fashionable at the moment in the UK, um, and, and you basically, if you just do nothing to land and say, oh, we're just allowing it to rewild, that's great. But actually, even that needs managing. Otherwise, it, it doesn't become, it doesn't get rewilded. It just turns into scrub, which is not always a good thing. Um, so it's it's a bit of an issue around here. And politically, it's a hot potato. So we're, we're just waiting to see where all that goes. And Leslie, you are one of the few Merino breeders in the UK, which is pretty yeah. special for you. <laughs> what sort of bloodlines do you use? Right. Well, we are founded on old rock bank lines. And I say old because these are sort of 10 to 15 years back when we started. And I know that the Crawfords have moved direction slightly since this time. So we've got old rock banks and we've got newer additions from Grathlin and Glenara. Um, and really, we're, we're producing um, four main lines plus potential crosses. We've got the original rock banks, which are producing traditional bright white, 
high crimping superfine and they ultimately go back to old ringmaster of Merrillville. And we also have some older lines in that strain. Um, we have a few bloods from Winton in Tasmania and a couple of Saxon studs in New Zealand in that mix. Then we have some newer genetics. We have some from Glenara, from Trevor Mybus in Victoria. And again, it's traditional superfine, but with a modern twist. They're bigger animals, much more productive. And again, they go back to Maryville Ringmaster. Then we've got Grasslin, Grasslin Ultrafines from near Mudgee. Uh, they're a different style, but again, they're going back to Maryville. And again, bigger frames, more productive. And then finally, we've got a, a South Australian line. We have um, semen from Sid Laurie's Calandra North Stud on the Air Peninsula. He has sheep that surpri do surprisingly well in high rainfall areas. And uh, some of his stuff ended up in higher rainfall areas of New South Wales. And we picked it up from there because obviously we realized if it was doing well, in the higher rainfall areas in New South Wales, it would probably be okay for us. And that's definitely proved to be the case. And we're experimenting with that line, producing a 19 to 20 micron polled line. Um, obviously the other sheep that we got are sort of um, anything from uh, about 15 to 16 and a half micron. But this, this South Australian line is a 19 to 20 micron polled animal. It's early days on that, but it's really exciting. And I think it's got tremendous potential. And then we have an additional line, which is these new South Australian ewes I was talking about earlier. And I think we're going to talk about those a little bit later on in the podcast. Yeah, um, we will, that... Leslie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yep. I'll start that again. Yeah. Yes, we will, Leslie. Uh, look, I'd like to ask you a question now. Compared to Australia, we're, we're a little bit more set in the ways of the direction that we go with our animals. So why are you experimenting with so many different bloodlines over yeah. in the UK? This, this is a very valid point. What you have to remember is that we're starting from a base of zero. We we had a good idea that the rock banks would work, and that's proved to be the case. And the other lines we've brought in really just to see where they go in a UK climate. And the reason for doing that is because we have a tremendous amount of interest from European merino growers. They obviously farm in a range of environments. They have everything from dry, really desert-like conditions, very similar to the far west of New South Wales or parts of South Australia. Um, right through to high rainfall areas and growers out there are desperate for new lines, new genetics, but they don't want to, can't afford or don't have the facilities to import genetic material from Australia. What they do want to do is buy animals on the hoof that have been proved in a European situation. So we saw that as a business opportunity. So we have been importing a variety of lines to try and see how they get on in our conditions. Basically, if they work for us here, they will work pretty much anywhere in Europe. Um, they, may, they need managing slightly differently depending on, on the, the, the type of wool, the structure of the fleece. Um, obviously, high density is a real point that we have to look for in high rainfall areas, but we can have a more open fleece for drier areas. So we have to manage them differently on our property. 
but we can we can pick out animals that will do well in certain environments in other parts of Europe. And that's basically where we're going with this. I love it. It's a fantastic um, way of working. It's experimenting with every generation, which I love. But our core wool business is most definitely based off the rock banks with Glenara in there because that wool suits our farm. Ideally, we produce great crops of wool, best quality, really fantastic wool that everybody wants to buy. So we're, we're really thrilled with that. But the other lines are very much um, developing for European buyers. It's a it's a good way, definitely, I can see, to add diversity to your business. And I can tell you love it just by the tone in your voice. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You obviously have a very, you're so um, on top of what you're doing there, Leslie, you obviously have a very clear breeding object, objective for your core wool business. So what is that? Uh, 16 and a half micron, bright white, high crimping, traditional, sort of modern Saxon, if you like, Saxon with a twist which is really what our buyers in Europe are looking for. We're, we're aiming for Italian mills and that's where some of it's going. We have two flocks. We have our commercial flock and our elite flock. And the elite flock goes out as elite bales to Italian mills. Um, we've just started to do that this year. And the core commercial use just go out to a local, um, well, not local, but a, a, a UK retailer with whom we've been working for um, 11 years now. And they just buy it all and turn it into a fantastic range of products for their shops. And you've said before that most of your genetics seems to come from Australia. Is that correct? You source all yeah. your genetics from us? Yeah, we, every, everything comes from you and, and has... Uh, has done from day one really you know we, we've looked always to find the best that we can we've taken advice from from people we trust and so far it's worked like a dream but yes definitely from Australia and that obviously means artificial breeding so what artificial breeding techniques do you have to utilize to get the yeah, genetics into your flock yeah every year we have to do AI and ET which obviously is expensive, probably a lot more expensive for us than it is for you because everything's done on a miniature scale over here with, with small numbers. But we have a really good team. We've worked with them for years and we've grown together really. We also have incredibly good contacts with some key people in the Australian artificial breeding industry. Um, so we work with two or three great vets out there. So my vets talk to your vets and um, discuss you know, what issues we might be having, or whether we, we've had good success rates one year and not such good the next. You know, why might that be? What have we done? Is there any difference? Can we improve things? So there's a lot of communication on the technical side of the breeding. Um, but yes, every year it's AI and ET. And of course, we also have a few of our own good runs now. So there's our own, um, there's our own natural matings going on as well. Leslie, we've just finally broken the drought in Australia, in parts of New South Wales at any rate, it's looking much better this season and you're in quite a high rainfall area there, but along with the rain finally arriving in New South Wales came quite a few sheep health concerns. So what are your main animal health concerns being in such a higher rainfall area to what we would be used to? Yeah, well, I, I guess we're, we're very much the same. It's going, it's bound to be worms. 
worms of all shapes and sizes. We don't actually have homonchus on this farm. We don't have barber pole. Um, we're very fortunate. We're a closed unit, a completely closed unit. So we never brought it on and we don't have it here. We're obviously vigilant because there's no such thing as never but we don't have it. We do all our own fecal egg counts and we don't see it and we don't have any symptoms. And every now and again, I get some tested in a lab just to make sure as well. Um, we have liver fluke, less of a problem for us than some other farms because we're on pretty free draining ground. Um, and we have a huge problem with flies. So we have to be very, very careful managing the, the, the sheep and the wool for fly strike. We've just gone through three days of incredibly warm weather here. It's been hitting 23 degrees, which is very unusual for March. And the flies have hatched and our sheep are in full wool. And they're also just beginning to, to go, be a bit loose around the back end because they've gone out on fresh spring grass. So I'm on watch now for fly until they get shorn. So we have as big a problem as you do with flies. Mm -hmm. one, one thing we don't have, which you might expect us to have, is foot rot. Um, everybody else in the UK pretty much has foot rot. It's accepted as endemic and people are tolerant of foot rot in a way that I know you guys in Australia are not. I don't think we should be, but we are tolerant of foot rot. But we are completely free of foot rot. We've had um, a university team from University of Birmingham working here with us on this to try and find out why. <laughs> and mm. everybody expecting merinos in particular with their white feet and very poor reputation. They have an appalling reputation in this country for having foot problems. Everybody was expecting my sheep to be riddled with foot rot, but we just don't have it. Full stop. And they don't really know why. We don't have symptoms and we don't have the bacteria. So we, we have mm. no problem. So oh, that's fantastic. We're lucky. We're very lucky. Yeah, very, very lucky. Leslie, yeah. you mentioned to me in an email earlier this week that you sent that you're starting lambing this week, which is pretty exciting for you. Um, what are you hoping to achieve this year? Well, we've got yet more new genetics. We've got new combinations. We've crossed some of our existing lines with our other existing lines. And We've got those lambs on board and, and imminent. A couple of them have landed already and there's more due in the next couple of weeks. And we're very pleased with what's coming out so far. We've got some really lovely looking skins on the sheep. Um, good weights. Um, average weights for singles at the moment is sort of 5.5 kilos. And uh, twins is about 4.5 average. And then we've had a couple of real stonkers born. We had a 7.3 kilo lamb and a 7.1 kilo lamb, which I've Whoa. never, never, ever had. <laughs> and both of those came out the 60 kilo ewes and they actually came out, you know, no problem. They just popped out like shelling peas. So Yeah, that's I, incredible. And incredible birth weights. Well done. Yeah, well done to you and your team because that's fantastic. Well, to be honest, you know, I, I think, yeah, that's great. But actually, that's only a tiny part of the story. That's 10 percent of the story, isn't it? It's easy to get them out that weight. But what the key is to get them through to wieners and then get them through to adults still performing at that sort of level. So if I can do that, then I think I've done a good job. But until I've got them to adulthood looking as good as they do as these newborn lambs, then I'm not sure I can say I've done a good job. And that's where my skill comes in. <laughs> yeah, well, very good start. So 
To get them the rest of the way, do you use people, do you consult with professionals for assistance? Yeah, yeah. not so much in this country, to be honest, because 90% of, of, well, 100% of the advisors and technical health in this country is focused on meat breeds. So all their reference points are completely different. Feed requirements are different. And the whole aim of the meat flocks in this country is to get lambs off the premises by four, five months of age. By that age, they've gone. They're already at killing weight. Whereas, of course, that's just not the way we work with merinos. You know, they're slower to get there. They, we don't want them to grow too quick in many ways. We want them to just to, 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 to take the time that they need to develop everything properly. Um, and we're focused on wool, not meat. So there isn't the help in the UK. Uh, so I, I do consult regularly with Australia, with colleagues and friends in Australia. But I also earwig regularly to things like your wonderful series of webinars. You know, there was that great that great one a couple of days ago on, on looking after wieners, um, managing your wieners to make sure that you do the best job. And I learned loads from that. Um, some of it is relevant because obviously your pasture conditions are a little bit different, but the majority of it is extremely relevant. And I use I use the information I get a great deal. So it's oh, very that's, good. That's fantastic to hear. How did you find out about Sheep Connects New South Wales? That was really because I've been over several times and I had seen literature and information around. I also visited Armadale uh, two or three years ago on a tour from the Australian Superfine Wool Growers. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw lots of information and met a few people. And uh, I just thought then it looked great, picked up some of the booklets, some of the information. And, you know, I was away, really, um, not really looked back. And I've always been keeping an eye on what goes on on the Internet and, and wished I could be there. And when you started to go online, I thought, wow, great. And jumped in as good. So I'm really grateful. It's just wonderful for me. It really is. Well, what a small world, Leslie, because I was actually at that Superfine um, Warm um, Conference when it was in Armadale. So we would have crossed paths without even knowing it. Yes, we must have met. Yes. <laughs> so you have a number of links to Australia, which I think is really fantastic. Um, the ones that I haven't spoken about in the introduction, I'd like you to tell our listeners about now, if you would, please. Yeah. Well, I, I've got quite strong connections with AWI. Um, I've been involved with, with some of the work that they do in one way or another. I'm often used by AWI in Europe, by Woolmark in Europe, to provide photo shoot opportunities um, and I'm always very happy to do that. You know, if they want a, a, a pet a friendly Australian Merino flock to photograph in Europe without having to, to um, use key flocks in Australia, they come to me. Um, they send fashion students to me, for example. Uh, all sorts of connections with AWI in Europe and back in Australia. Um, I've got connections with obviously various studs through my um, my need for genetics. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest connections I have with Australia is I have an Aussie wool classer who works with me, which is wonderful and a tremendous stroke of good luck. Uh, you know, there's a point up to which I can class my own wool now. I've learned enough to understand what's 
properly good and what's not so good. But actually, the finer points are still beyond me because I just don't have the years of experience. So having Tom on board is brilliant. He's an Australian. He was trained in Australia. He was he worked for Modiano's for years and then he came over here and married an English girl. And he's now working in the English wool industry. And Tom and I have worked together for several years now. And every time we shear, he classes my wool, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And he also gives me um, very sound advice on the wool on the hoof as well. You know, we'll go through the use most years and just check them out. And he helps and says, well, yes, yeah, I think she's OK. But I don't think I'd bother with that one. That one can go down the road. You know, she's really, really kind and helpful. And then the other connection, which is a very much more recent one and a bit uh, torturous, is I've just been gifted 10 wonderful South Australian ewes. Now, I've known they were in this country for a while. They were over here as part of a research project run by the University of Cambridge. Nothing to do with wool. It was completely totally nothing to do with wool. It was to do with um, neurophysiology research that the university was conducting. But they were imported under special home office license from South Australia three, four years ago and kept at the University of Cambridge research facility. I was involved in helping them manage the sheep because they had no idea how to look after merinos. So I gave them a few basics. When the project ended, they asked me if I would take on the sheep and look after them for the rest of their natural life. And I said, yep, yeah, sure. So that's what happened. So just before Christmas, 10 rather surprised South Australian Merinos, <laughs> their first three years in, in Australia, in, in, um, just outside Adelaide, then spent the next four years in Cambridge, uh, then came down to Devon. So they looked at me and I looked at them and I said, right, OK, girls, here we go. You're here for the rest of your natural life. And they're, they're great sheep. They're completely and utterly different from anything I've got. You can imagine they're a lot bigger. They're big, rangy sheep. I've done a lot of digging around. I've managed to establish a lot more about their genetics. And basically they are they go back to old Collinsville blood, old East Bungaree and Ashrose. So we've got some fantastic names in there, some wonderful, wonderful names. The wool is about 21, 23 micron. Uh, so a lot bolder, a lot broader than I'm used to. And the sheep are too old to breed. They are eight and they have never lambed. But of course, they're perfect for embryo transfer. So come October, these girls will all be used as embryo donors and we'll cross them with some semen from our Calandra North rams who are a little bit finer and we'll see where we go and I'm really excited about that because I've got a customer lined up for the lambs already which is amazing so yeah that's fantastic opportunity and very very exciting to get those new genetics into your playpen really is what I might call them yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's a good definition Fiona yeah we're in a fortunate position in that I can finance this, you know, so we don't get any money from anywhere else. So if I don't pay for it, nobody's going to help me pay for it. But the sheep are now self-financing. You know, the wool is basically paying for the most of it. And this sort of expensive 
playing about with genetics, if you like, is funded by selling those animals on. The good ones get sold on, um, and that works very well. I'm, I hasten to say they're going into Europe. I don't really have any interest in the UK. I'm still regarded as that crazy woman who keeps those funny <laughs> sheep in the UK, <laughs> even though I'm making money and they're not. That's that's a problem. You know, they still think I'm completely cracked. So that's fine. I don't care about that. I really I'm too old to care. I just love what I do. I love these sheep. I just think it's a fantastic industry and it's their tough luck if they can't see that. So <laughs> well, the Europeans will be enjoying the advantage you're giving them. And when we spoke yeah. before a little bit about where your wool's sold, so your elite group is um, sold straight off to the Italian mills. And yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit more about your commercial flock that's um, sold straight into UK buyers. What yeah. happens to their wool from there? Right. Well, it's we set up a processing chain for them. And again, I think this is one area where I have a massive advantage over you guys. We have a patent fully operational processing chain within the UK, which is used to handling fine wool. Um, so I was able to set up a processing chain for a retailer who came to me 11 years ago and said, we really, really want to buy wool off the sheep's back and turn it straight into product. We want full control over the whole thing. We want to know that what goes into our clothing has come from the back of your sheep because we love the way that you look after them. We love the way that you care for your environment. We want to be able to tell that story. Now that's becoming more common now, but 11 years ago, that was quite a rare thing. And Finisterre, who the company I work with, had this unique vision at the time of doing this. So I said, yep, sure. They said, we don't know how to do it. We haven't got a clue. And I said, well, I do, because I have the experience of the textile industry here. So I set it up for them. And the rest is history, really. They've been motoring ever since. Every year they buy my commercial clip. Every year they turn it into jumpers or whatever. And every year I don't have to worry about selling my wool. It all just disappears off and I get a check for it. And they come down to the farm and take lots of photographs, take videos. I give them regular updates about what's going on. I've just sent them some pictures this week of lambing um, and I'll do a short film for them and keep their customers updated. I have to I have to be prepared to answer questions from customers. And that sometimes is quite a challenge because they're very savvy. They're very eco conscious. They're very animal welfare conscious. So I get asked lots of um, occasionally quite awkward questions. You know, they'll say, well, they obviously ask me if I'm mules. And I say, well, no, because A, we don't need to be it's illegal in this country. And then the next question is, do you cut their tails off? Surprisingly, you might that might surprise some of your listeners, but actually it's a very moot point in Europe. They seem to be extremely well aware of um, tailing and castration. And yes, we do tail our sheep but we're under tremendous pressure to stop doing it. And it's the next big thing after mulesing over here. Once they have satisfied themselves that you don't mules, the very next question is, do you take their tails off? And if so, why? Can't you manage them in any other way? So, you know, we're constantly having to listen to what our end users are saying. And we are incredibly close to our end users. And it's always good because you get those early warning signs 
about what's going to be the next big elephant in the room. And I certainly think it's going to be tailing. And we need to think about that quite hard right now. Leslie, you're really fortunate that you're in such a wonderful position where you sell your wool straight to the end market, really. And it's um, a great news story. Mm. I think it is. And it, it, it is an advantage. It works well because you are in touch with those end users. You know, and it, when, I, when you're so far away as you are in Australia, I think that is a challenge for you. Certainly talking to friends in the Superfine Wool Growers Association, you know, that they do feel cut off because they know roughly where their wool goes, but it goes through so many hands before it gets there. Well, for me, yes, it goes through processing hands, but actually those hands I know because I actually organized the chain. And also it goes direct to my retailer who I also know. And I even know the customers because I go to the shops and do evenings and features and um, meet the processor, meet the producer type evenings at these places. Um, so we are in touch in a way that it's much more challenging to do if you're in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. We, you're right on their doorstep. One last question before I let you go. Um, I'd really like to know a little bit more about your role with the Campaign for Wool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I thought quite early on that I, I was getting so much help from my friends in Australia that it would be fantastic to see if I could give something back to our industry. And I was asked to join the council for the campaign for wool, which I suspect most of you, your listeners will know about. But it was a, a campaign started 11 years ago by His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, to try and promote wool in all its forms and increase its use and uptake among the public. Um, and so I joined the council, uh, which consists of about 20 odd people from all parts of the wool industry and from all countries. But funnily enough, it's very low on grower members. In fact, apart from myself, there is only, I think, one or two other uh, representatives of growers on, the, on that uh, council. Both of those are British. So focusing on coarse end of the wool, nobody apart from myself is representing growers of Merino. Um, so I felt very much that I was there to be the voice of the grower. And that's where I see myself. And that's how I'm used on the council. Very, very often I will either interject at some point and say, well, just hang on a minute, guys, you know, let's just think about the person who's actually producing that wool here. It's all very well talking about what you're going to do with it at the other end. But what about those of us who actually grow the stuff? So I occasionally interject at that base point, but also I get asked questions from the other way. You know, retailers and processors will come to me and say, well, you know, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think as a grower? So that is a really useful role i think you know being there representing the people who are hands-on the sheep every day and it's something that is easily forgotten when you have a huge council full of processors retailers and marketing people who i might say are doing a fantastic job they really are you know i think the campaign has done a really good job raising the profile it may not always be obvious but there's a lot of publicity out there and so many people now are aware of wool in a way that they weren't before. So basically, I think it's doing a good job and um, continues to do so. And I hope I'm lucky enough to be associated with it for a long time to come. 
Yeah, it is a very good campaign and we're um, very lucky to have a final producer as part of that campaign. Well, Leslie, I've had an absolute wonderful time this afternoon talking to you So, and morning for you since we're doing our 10-hour <laughs> time difference. But yeah. thank you very much for joining us today on It's Time For You and sharing your story with our listeners. You're very welcome, Fiona, and thank you very much for asking me. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of It's Time For You, the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. We'd appreciate it if you could share our podcast within your networks. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales. And you can do this in a number of ways. Join our network by visiting www.sheepconnectnewsouthwales.com com.au find us at sheep connect new south wales on facebook and twitter we look forward to seeing you at our workshops and events later in the year thanks again for joining us today bye for now <music>